0: Hey there, quick couple of notes before this week's episode. First of all, we've booked our next live show. It'll be at the Palace Pub and Wine Bar in Cape Coral with local pub trivia quiz master and co-host of the No Nonsense Trivia Podcast, Lee Brett Schneider. Check out that podcast if you haven't already. That will be Monday, November 25th at 7 p.m. We hope to see you there. Second of all, we've got t-shirts now. They're for sale only at Nice Guys Pizza, which is across the street from the Palace there in Cape Coral. Third of all, please find us on Facebook and Instagram and share the love and rate us on iTunes, etc. We need you to help get the word out. Now, fourth of all, on to the show.
1: One, two, three...
0: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that taps into our guests' lives and memories by forcing them to pick three songs that will always take them back somewhere and some when. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Tim McBride. Tim's a former marijuana smuggler slash pot hauler who had a hand in bringing millions of pounds of pot into the country via Everglades City from the late seventies until the late eighties. His book Saltwater Cowboy: The Rise and Fall of a Marijuana Empire, which was published in twenty fifteen, details how he wound up smuggling weed in the Everglades after leaving Wisconsin in 1979 to do some work as a crab fisherman. He and his crew were middlemen between a Colombian marijuana cartel and their distributors in Miami. His team included fishermen, drivers, stockhouses, and security. His book says seemingly all of Chukalusky Island was in on the operation back then. Tons upon tons of marijuana would pass through his hands during that time until he was busted in 1989 and spent four years in prison. Tim came across our radar when episode 81 guest Sam Walsh recommended him as a potential guest. Sam is director of Florida Gulf Coast University's Cannabis Career Initiative and actually uses Tim's book in his class. Once he told us about this dude and his story, it was immediately obvious that we needed him in the Three Song Stories chair. So let's get directly to those stories. Hey there, Tim. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. This is cool. So whereabouts in Wisconsin
1: uh, were you raised... I had spent my high school years in southern Wisconsin. Okay. Um, most people would recognize the name Lake Geneva more than it would recognize the little town Delavan next door, where I actually went to high school okay. and grew up. My father was eighty uh, second Airborne, growing up in North Carolina, and got a sales job out of the out of the Air, um, Army, and uh, wound up taking him to the Midwest. And I spent four years there, freezing my butt off in in, in uh, Southern Wisconsin. What was the musical background of your time there? Uh, of course, it was classic rock band. That was the '70s, right? You know, and that's when guys were just coming out of the garages. You know, anybody that could that could bang on a guitar and a drum, dude, you had you were in a rock band, right? You know, those were uh, those were kind of uh, the premi years for that.
0: What were you listening to?
1: Um, What was what were your folks listening to? Um, They were still up in the doo wop thing, okay, the Motown and that. You know, uh, from the era that they came from, the fifty ish kind of stuff. You know, and um, we were just clinging on to uh, you know Ted Nugent and the Boy Dukes, Um, (laughs) of course Led Zeppelin, and you know the classic Doobie Brothers you know, guys like that, um, Mott the Hoople. Who? Mott the Hoople. I don't know that one. No, look
0: that one <laughs> up, brother. <laughs> um, uh, what was the first band you, you know, glommed onto?
1: Um, first band, I think, uh, might have been uh, Kansas. Oh, yeah? Yeah.
0: What about them?
1: Kansas sticks out, sticks out to me because of an incident we had with a bunch of buddies uh, trying to go see Kansas, and Foreigner was opening up for them. And it was just a snowstorm, man. It was coming down so thick, you know. We should, we had no business being out on the road, right? But we had to get to this Kansas yeah, concert, yeah. right? And um, getting off the exit ramp on the interstate was a blast because we get down to the bottom. And there's only two ways to go: left or right, or you go over, th- across the road and over the edge. it right. It's just freshly new, fresh, wet snow, and and I had not had experience with all this kind of stuff up you know, until I moved up there, you know, and. My buddy who 's driving the van, and there 's like twelve of us in this thing. he cranks the wheel, and there 's no turning. Oh boy. This thing's going straight through this intersection we 're not even stopping i 'm thinking, oh God, are we going we 're going over the edge, and we can see the arena from you know from there we 're almost there <laughs> and for some i don 't know what happened to it. It hit that, that that fresh snow hit that fresh gravel underneath, and it just turned Wow, <laughs> it, it turned and we made the, we made the left turn, and down to the show we went. Huh? And proceeded to do what uh, you know, young kids in the '70s do in those days at concerts like that. Like what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like roll as many fat ones as you can you can roll in, in your fist and take in with you.
0: Uh, do you yeah. remember when you were first exposed to fat ones?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, I um, alluded to this fact actually in my book. Um, we had a chore every year because the uh, the lake we lived on. And you put your own dock in every year, put your own, you know, your own pier. And that was us guys' job, us kids' job. So we went and got a bunch of buddies from in town to come out and help us, just hang out at the lake and swim and, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, I followed them across the street one day into the bushes, and they had a little brass pipe, man, and away we went. That was my first first time I got stoned.
0: Hmm. Why did you have to put docks in every year? Were they, like, just little temporary docks, basically?
1: Yeah, well— They can be very, pretty elaborate. They can be. You know, we're talking about Lake Geneva, Lake Delavan, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, summertime lakes where a lot of Chicago people come up and and rent cottages and stuff, you know. But um, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly. It's about three, maybe four miles in length and maybe a mile and a half at its widest. And they ice up, man. That ice gets two, three foot thick. And oh, if you leave these docks in the water, got when the you. ice shifts... It just destroys them. It just splinters them. And, you know, you'll find them 50 yards down the way hmm. you know, when, by the time the ice thaws because that ice moves and shifts. Yeah. You
0: know. did, the, uh, the, did the first bowl uh,
1: get in the way of building the dock? It didn't get built that day. <laughs> 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 I tell you what, the refrigerator got its <laughs> ass tore <laughs> off. I'll tell you that much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, uh, did you play music uh, instruments at all, you know, as a kid growing no, up?
1: No, <laughs> I, I had aspired to play drums, but that's all it was. It was an aspiration. And every time I got around a drum kit, I just, you know, you know I wasn't too bad at it for, you know, for the exposure that I had to right. drum kits when I had them. But, no, you know— I, I not very musically inclined with in that. It, it was too much like work,
0: right? Well, there, you know? yeah, it, it doesn't come easy. Just figuring out the <laughs> notes and all that crap, reading it, you know, huh? no, that ain't me. <laughs> um, did you dream of getting out of there? Like when you were like getting into high school, junior, senior year, were you like, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to hit the road, or like, what was that dynamic like no, at that point? You know
1: what? It just, in retrospect, it never uh My dodging out of there never occurred to me that way. What took place primarily in the in the way I operated my you know my being was that if something better came along if somebody had you know had a place they wanted to go or some of place they were going dude I was in on it you know um uh i had a that's how I wound up working out in California for a little over a year i worked in I worked in Los Angeles for um Sammy Davis jr of all people doing what um actually i was uh, I was the original version of the of the DVR the, the 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 TiVo okay he um Mike it was rather a strange arrangement of how it, how it took place, but my cousin uh, Joey at the time and his best friend actually drove Sammy's tour bus for him and the reason they were they were driving you know considerably uh, as much as they were was because Sammy's road manager at the time couldn't fly. So their job was to drive him around the country doing what they do. So I spent some time out there hanging out, and this guy Richard, his advisor, said, "Hey, you need a, you want a job, dude? You know, come out and hang out." I said, yeah, hell yeah. So my job was because Sammy traveled, and we did a lot of Broadway shows. Um, he when he watched television, he didn't want to watch it with the damn commercials in him. Huh. So he, I, my job was to f- meet him wherever he was that week hand him a TV guide for the next week, and he'd give me one that's already got everything checked out that he wanted to watch. Him. He was ordering his TV, and uh, you were assembling it. I, I was putting the TV <laughs> shows together, and, and and I had, you know, at that time, that was, um, VHS uh, uh, had just started to come out. Yeah, that would have been the early days of beta and beta VHS. Beta big yeah. three-quarter-inch yeah. freaking things, man, um, and, uh, but... Uh, Richard being in the business of duplicating these from cellulose from bigger motion picture houses like Columbia, Paramount, United Artists and those, that they were having these transposed onto these VHS tapes Mm. in advance of sales because, I mean, they got to have these things on the shelves So when they go boom, this stuff's out there, there they are. So three months or so in advance, we're getting these motion pictures from Columbia and United Artists and Paramount. And he, of course, has a list of celebrities that are – checking off what ones they want to see yeah. you know? so it was kind of a behind the scenes black market kind of a thing you going were a on. pirate
0: before you were a pirate <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> pirating movies you know but uh, um, unbeknownst to me unwittingly yeah yeah, you know, yeah. but uh, I was handing them out to people like Milton Berle and Sonny and Cher and uh, an old NFL dude from the day uh, Rosie Greer was his name wow and uh, just to name a few. And they would order these movies and I would video – I would transfer them, you know, make copies yeah, and, yeah. and deliver them to them. But Sammy's movies on television, if I was not there watching it and stopping and editing commercials as I'm recording it, I would let it play. And go off to the beach and throw frisbee with my boy, buddy Sean out at, at uh, Topanga Beach for, hmm. you know, four or five hours and drive back into the valley and uh, just go through the movies and edit the commercials back out of them. Wow! You know? So it was kind of a cool gig. I did that, and everything was paid for. Man, I didn't have to. You know, I didn't pay for the apartment. I didn't pay for eats, food. He had a rent a car for me. I mean, you name it. The only problem I had was taking the damn check that he gave me to the bank to cash it. Why? Well, it says Sammy Davis Jr. on it. And here's this kid standing there in t shirt and cut off jeans. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where in the hell you get his check Jeff- from Sammy Davis Jr., dude? <laughs> wow. <laughs> After you... the first couple of deposits and phone calls, we got that straightened out.
0: <laughs> uh, so, so how did Florida then wind up on your radar?
1: Well, I... did you
0: even know anything about Florida?
1: No, not even at that time. Well,
0: own i Chuck
1: Well, I did, you know, because my first trip to down to. And I actually went out on a a stone crab boat was in 74 Mm -hmm. Um, as a kid in high school. I had the summer off and I had drove my – I drove my Mustang down because um, my next door neighbor, my best friend Mark, his sister, um, was my friend as well. And she was married to the manager of the only stone crab fish house on the so island. That was your way in. So it was a family kind of a thing. You know, right. so I went down and visited them and went on a crab boat and, you know, the old experience and stuff. And it was just something that never really stuck until, you know, a few years later after I had done my gig in LA with, you know, Sammy and you know, that got of kind of be uh, uh you know one of these things after the you know the television and the you know seeing the celebrity thing bust that bubble after burst after it wore off you were just that you bubble were just burst moving for, data around yeah, yeah. that <laughs> bubble burst for me man it just you know it just didn't you didn't you know television just never was the same for me motion pictures and that kind of thing hmm. um but uh that being said i had gone back to wisconsin from that you know from la and i wasn't there 3 weeks and and this is when um my next door neighbor Mark, who was living in now in in uh, in Milwaukee, calls me and says, "Dude, tomorrow I'm I'm driving to Florida tomorrow. I'm going to work for you know my brother in law in the fish house, and he's got a buddy. Got a, I'm going to get on the back of a stone crab boat and go fishing. And you want to go? Hell yeah, man! I'm the, Let's go. <laughs> I didn't give it a second thought, dude. I just packed my stuff in my in my uh, Cobra and off I went the next morning. What year was your Cobra? That was a, it was the '76. Wow. Yeah, it was a it was a badass little car. It was kinda cool. One of my first you know, growing up, you know, and um growing up with the kind of kids that I grew up with. You know, we're all fairly responsible, you know. So, and I lead to this fact in my book that you know, becoming an outlaw in in, in a smuggler has nothing whatsoever to do with any dysfunction in my family. I mean, I was just a normal guy, normal kid growing up, and had, you know, and I had to make my money to hang on with everybody else. You know, right. we we're going to go and and the uh, the the drinking age in in Wisconsin in those years was eighteen. It was 21 in Illinois, which was only you know Chicago was only an hour away. Right. So uh, everybody that we grew up and hang out and hung out with was from the city because they would come up on the weekends, and, right? You know, right. and hang. So uh, the bars and the you know the club scene and that was nothing new to us. We had done that since high school. Right. I mean, you're 18 when you're a senior in high school, that sort of thing. So you you take on a bit of responsibility with that regard, hmm. you know, at an early age, you know. Yeah. Um, so you know, taking all this with me. You know, and the notion that whenever something, you know, came up that, you know, was new and different like this. So when Mark called me, I thought, well, yeah, hell yeah. Because I had always been the kind of guy where if an opportunity presented itself to me in any fashion whatsoever and it caught me, you know, appealed to me, then I just did it. Because I never wanted to be that guy that sat around and, you know, and said, Dan, I wish I'd have done that. And then kicked myself in the ass for not doing it. You know, so I did it. (laughs) Huh. <laughs> um,
0: well, let's get to your first song.
1: Sure. What sure. is it? What is the story? Let's uh, let's do. Uh, how about the uh, Welcome to the Jungle? You got it. Now this this came about at a time when uh, in my earlier years, uh, my younger years in smuggling, we would uh, it was always um, it was always part of the adults. Um, uh, job to keep us kids in check with the amount of money that we're making. And we're averaging, you know, as kids, you know, and guys and gals.
0: Kids like early 20s? We were
1: talking about early tw- 21, right. 22, yeah. like this. You know, we're the guys doing all the work. Mm-hmm. You know, the adults aren't out there humping these, you know, 60, 70 pound, 800, and, you know, and a 1,000 of them bales a night, two and three times a night. Hell no, they're not doing that. Right. the Kids are doing that. So those positions pay rather well. You know, so we're averaging you know one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a week as kids. Wow! So, and that's this. this is like the late seventies, early eighties. Late eight, late seventies, early eighties. That's a lot yeah. of money today, oh, let alone then. Dude, the average guy <clears throat> making a decent living was making you know if you were making fifteen grand a year, you were doing really well, right. You know, in those years and, you know, that's one trip to Miami and back Right. You know? wow. for somebody that was a driver, you know, and, and like that. But, you know, the, the hierarchy of the of – the, of you know, the, the nature of things was going offshore and unloading the freighters from Columbia and that's how I got involved in it. My, our boats would go offshore and unload that. The, the, the pay is higher simply because less people are in control of the entire load. Three people can be in charge and have the the entire load and be responsible for it when you go off short on load forty you know twenty tons of stuff. you can get that on one boat, wow, but there's only three guys on the boat, right, so we're making the king money yeah you know i'm I'm averaging you know just working those the, you know those jobs at night, you know depending on the size of the load fifty seventy five hundred thousand dollars a a trip wow. And then it then breaks down because the loads get split up. Smaller boats take only so much and this and that, you know, that kind of thing. So um, that being said, um, when you get around to the, uh, you know, the, the logistics of it and, and having this kind of money, the adults were very adamant about how to be able to spend money and not have anything to show for it. Because if you started showing up with Corvettes, and I mean, well, I had a Corvette. I mean, well, you, could, you could live to a certain degree because – You stone started crabbing, with Corvette. Well, I had a Corvette. You know, you know, yeah, I had to catch myself there for a second because you know, I, I think you know, Corvettes are you – know, and even at that time were considered a, a luxury – ultimate luxury vehicle, of course. you know They're expensive in those days. Yeah. But that being said, the amount of money you made just as a stonecrabber – was good money, right? So I could afford to live according to those types of means. But mm-hmm. beyond that, was where the trouble came, or if you, if, you know, if you weren't careful, and the adults kept their thumb on the back of your neck pretty tight with that regard, because you started getting stupid. You're putting and, everybody in danger. Well, you're sticking out like a sore friggin' thumb. Yeah, and you your, got your
0: thumb up. You got a
1: Corvette, <laughs> or you got a, a a Porsche, or some stupid shit like that. You just got diamonds and gold and jewelry, stupid crap, you know. And you're buying a house all of a sudden. No, 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 no. They were teaching us ways to spend money and not accumulate, you know, wealth. And um, this is how I wound up meeting Bam Bam um, and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow. He wasn't Bam Bam at the time. Who is Bam Bam Bigelow? Bam Bam Bigelow is. uh, How dare you, Mike and (laughs) I?
0: They're (laughs) (laughs) looking at me like I'm like I'm out of my freaking mind. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: know, right? You know, I I have have to say,
0: (laughs) I uh, I embrace my ignorance. (laughs) I say,
1: I say, Bam 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 Bigelow. (laughs) You know, most people go, oh, yeah, dude, bad ass. that's – you know, that – I say his name in the same sentence as Terry Hogan, you know, Hulk Hogan because they paled together. They hung together. I'm getting a clue. Bam Bam, bam Bigelow bam, bam. is the is, – was the <laughs> WWE two-time world heavyweight tag team champion. Okay. And he was a badass. And uh, – um before he became that badass wrestler. <laughs> <laughs>
0: They're still guy. giving me <laughs> s- back who, here.
1: who? <laughs> Hey man, like I
0: said, I embrace my ignorance. Go. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. He, okay, well I hope you remember who Jimmy Buffett is when we get I to do, that. I okay. do know who Jimmy Buffett is. <laughs> God is bad man. Bam! Bam! There we go. Yes, sir. <laughs> <his theme> <laughs> here it comes. This is the song right here. He was one of my dearest friends you know and at that time we're in we're in miami partying and i got like 200 grand on me that i'm trying to turn into 11 dollars and change so we can come home you know right. just, just piss it away and scotty comes up to me and he goes you know i, want, I really wanted to get into wrestling timmy and i go to texas and he said it's good to talk about, <laughs> about 30 grand right <laughs> that was cool and uh, I had it on me I had it right there in hundred. I stuck it right in his face I said dude you know I'll give you this I'd be happy to give this to you right now but I know what you'll do with it dude you'll go and you'll take off and you'll have some awesome freaking party somewhere and you won't even invite my ass right so let's just spend it here so I didn't really take him seriously so we went through all that money and all this uh, stuff you know weeks go by next thing you know he takes off and surfaces months later he's you know he got his way in and uh, a guy at, the, at that time, which this is probably going to go <laughs> over your head as well, was Bring a it. very flamboyant <laughs> manager by the name of Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Okay, you know, he was a, he was one of those crazy, wacky ass, you know, ambassadors to the wrestler, right, and, right, and that right kind of thing. Well. They wanted this particular song by Guns N' Roses, and it wound up being Welcome to the Jungle. So whenever whatever wrestler comes bolting out of the curtains and down to the ring, they've got this badass song playing. So that's what Scotty wanted. He wanted Welcome to the Jungle. That came out in early 1987. And in late 1987 is when he adapted the song to become his his theme song. So when he busted down, the, you know, busted into the ring and started knocking heads together, this is what happened. So he calls me one day out of the blue. I'm here in Naples. This is prior to my getting, you know, indicted and going through all this stuff. And he's hanging out with Terry Hogan. Um, Terry Bolero is his name. He lived in Sarasota at that time. Oh, wow. In that Tampa area. Well, they would fly in, drive down to the Civic Center, and he would call me and say, Hey, dude, you know, bring me and Terry and I... You know, the guy's a nice sack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I said, cool, you know, where do I meet you? He said, come around back to where the tent is, and all the guys are hanging out and stuff. And he said, just walk right in there. He said, anybody gives you any s***, tell them you're my manager. You know, so I go walk into this place like the king dog, right? The civic center. The civic center. And... uh, and I see all these cool dudes, man. These old wrestling favorites that I grew up with, and shit, you know, just all in there having Kool Aid and Gatorade or whatever the hell they're doing. All buddies and chums and shit before they go out and fake beat the shit out of one another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and it's Terry Hogan, Hulk Hogan. He looks down and he goes, "Are you Timmy?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm Timmy." He goes, um, "He said Scott. He says you know to, to hang on to you. He said he'll be out here in a minute. He said, so let's let's take a walk outside." So we walk outside the tent and there's Terry Hogan. There's a the one-man gang and a couple of other awesome wrestlers standing out there wanting to see this sack I got in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, you know, those generations are still with us and those people that enjoy that stuff are still with us. And unfortunately, Bam Bam, Scotty, he's not with us any longer. Mm. We lost him tragically to, of course, uh, you know, something that was plaguing our nation for the longest time, you know, um, painkillers. Mm-hmm. And couple that with alcohol. And in those days, you know, um, unfortunately, the um, people taking care of these medical needs of these awesome superstars had, didn't have that in their best interest. And unfortunately, we lost Scotty in 07. Mm. And um, every time I hear this song, you know, wherever I am, you know, it just takes me right back to those days. And I see Scotty vividly in my head. Just the coolest dude. Mm. You ready to hear it? Let's listen to it. Uh,
0: Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses from their 1987 album Appetite for Destruction.
1: (laughs) When's the last time you listened to that? Do you listen to it often? Uh, Oh, as a matter of fact, I heard it probably this morning. Oh yeah? Just when I heard it on the radio. Yeah, Hmm. I'm a classic rock guy, man. You know, I'm, I'm stuck in that.
0: Um, how do you listen to your music? I mean, you said on the radio this morning. Do you listen to the do – you, do you have like Pandora? Do you tell Alexa to turn on music? Or, no,
1: I just uh, – you know, I, I catch it mostly on the radio in my car on the way to the gym and back in the morning, hmm. and that type of thing. Uh, my days when I do cardio and stuff, I'll sit and, you know, I have my earphones on. I have iHeart, I, I you know, tuned into, you know, a lot of that classic stuff.
0: Do you ever listen to public radio? Uh,
1: very seldom. Yeah? I listen to public radio.
0: Um, um, we're going to play something here in terms of things that you don't know that I do. <laughs> okay. So on NPR, they have the little spots, they call them funders, where it's like between the programming, you hear a guy, will say, support for NPR is brought to you by PBS or whatever. Right. It's like the little thing. Right. The, the last national funder guy that retired a few years ago, he was giving an interview when he uh, retired, and they asked him to sing some or to say some lyrics in his NPR funder voice. And we're going to listen to that right now. And, okay. and for, for context, like they have to say it in a very straightforward, dry way
1: so that they're not it's like the rules right so
0: so it would be like support comes from coca-cola providing beverages to america since 19 whatever you know like
1: it it has to be a straight read yeah like it just yes right right straight off the the cuff it just came out so let's let's (laughs) let's hear this welcome to the jungle we've got fun and games we got everything you want honey we know the names we are the people that can find whatever you may need if
2: you got the money honey we got your disease in the jungle welcome to the jungle watch it bring you to your knees knees I I wanna watch
1: you bleed welcome to the jungle we take it day by day if you want it you're gonna bleed but it's the price you pay and you're a very sexy girl that's very hard to please you can taste the bright lights but you won't get them for free in
2: the jungle Welcome to the Jungle Feel my 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 serpentine. I I want to hear you scream.
0: <laughs> okay, so there's that. We'll throw that out there.
1: Not one damn bit of punctuation at all. <laughs> oh man. Um,
0: uh, uh, so uh, let's get a little bit further into the what happened there in Everglades City. You know, so okay. you, you moved down here. You and I, and this is all new to me. I had I've researched for this, and and I grew up in Fort Myers, and I didn't really know this story. You moved down here suddenly. You're part of this whole scene which was pretty much like practically an everglades citywide scene from right. what i picked up on yeah. right yeah it was how did you work your way in as an outsider because there was so much old-timerness going on there
1: well that goes back and really hand in hand with what we were talking about earlier about where i came from mm-hmm. um, my next door neighbors were um, that was your in were, were mark and nancy brother and sister Nancy was married to Thorne, who ran the fish house on Chukuleski Island. He's a native gotcha. of the area. And they, so when they came down, they knew all about us, where we came from, where I went to school. I, I babysitted for a while in, high, in my younger years in high school Nancy's younger daughter when she I wasn't see. around. So, so that, th- that was your local connection. They knew we weren't cops. We weren't tied yeah. to any kind of, you know, any affiliation whatsoever with that regard. So they kind of. You know, we didn't, they didn't actually just open the door and say, okay, let's go to work. You know, that kind of Right. Shit. It was, uh, there was a level of comfort that came along with them knowing where we came from. Just being around the island and living amongst them. They, you know, they were very guarded of that as well.
0: Did you spend much time up in Naples or Fort Myers? I mean, presumably, or were you mostly just right there? Just uh, you
1: know, just to go on the evenings, Friday, Saturday evenings and, you know, have a ball, have a blast or any kind of uh, major grocery shopping or things like that, you know, some resupplying and things like that because, you know, we're we're 30 miles from nowhere really. Yeah.
0: Is there a music scene at all there? Like, is there a bar where there's live music going on or anything like that?
1: There was... There were There were actually maybe two two really active places to go. I uh, wouldn't call them... I wouldn't call them clubs or anything like that, but they were mostly... Um, the captain's table was one for one that was in town, and a lot of locals show up there, of course. They had a cheeky bar out by the pool in the afternoons where guys would hang out and stuff like that, but... People that we didn't know or the older generations didn't know kind of, uh, you know, in their own way, in their own sensibility would ultimately wind up running them off, you know, because they didn't want any people they didn't know sitting around them, that sort of thing. Right. Um, That was a restaurant and a bar in town that a lot of the visitors and, you know, people that came from out of town would stay and, you know, and eat and, and this type of thing. But the place where we hung out mostly was a place called the Golden Lion which was outside of town on US 41, headed toward Miami, that direction, mm-hmm. and it was a, um, a hotel or motel that had a you know a, a dining a dining room and a, and a bar. And uh, every Friday night, Saturday night, it turned into Dodge City, because <laughs> that's where most of us guys go to hang. Yeah, out you yeah. know, and you know, and wind up tearing the place apart. You know, and these guys would just get, I mean, awesomely crazy and and wild and out of control and breaking chairs and all kind of stuff. And we'd always we'd always wind up leaving. You know, each of us leave the bartender five hundred, six hundred bucks, a thousand bucks to pay for the damages on the way
0: out. <laughs> and that was easy enough for you at yeah. that point in time.
1: Yeah, that was nothing, man. You you know, there was even a point in time where I'm sitting, We're sitting at the bar in the afternoon, just kind of waiting for things to happen. And this 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 family comes running in from the the glass door that you know keeps the the pool area separated from the other you know aspect of the of the motel. And this family, this man and this woman and the three kids, come running through the bar with their wet with their noodles and their blow up toys, screaming about some jerk in the pool with a boat. <laughs> And we're like, "Like, what the hell is this? What the hell are they talking about?" So we get up to the door, and a minute we open that glass door, we were bl- almost blasted off our feet by this belch of air and unrestricted exhaust. Then we look out there, and there's our buddy Calvin T in the pool with an airboat doing donuts. Wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> 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 Ran them people right out of there. So, oh, man. This is the kind of place we're talking about. You know, no no rules. No, Nobody's hurting anybody. You know, we're just having fun. You
0: know, in reading up on the whole story of what went down there, the interesting thing that I came across was it seemed like even though there was a lot of pot coming through there and there was a lot of money coming through there, it still stayed a really small, close-knit town. And there wasn't really a lot of – like you think of the – 80s in Miami, and you know a lot of murders and a lot of violence. Right. But it seemed like you guys somehow managed to keep the violence tamped down locally. Right? Is that well, true?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, when when you start, you know, putting the focus on Everglades City and Chocolusky, the two islands that we're that we're talking about, and the families that that grew up that make up the at that time, just under 600 people collectively between the two islands. Um, It was all family oriented. We grew up generationally. Um, The story that I told, uh, that I wrote about spans nearly 40 years and three generations of running the Caribbean smuggling with impunity and um, I also allude to the fact that you know, even with regards to you know, the nonviolent aspect of it, with regards to the work, but even when our family life, corporal punishment really wasn't a thing. Hmm. You know, the, you know, if if a couple of guys on the crew got to you know got the scrapping or something and got into a fight, you and know, your punishment was, look, boys, you you don't work for three jobs. You know, so now you're out. You know, at least one hundred fifty thousand bucks, dude. You got your ass spanked. Hmm. You know, when it comes to that, so yeah, yeah. It was, we were kept in check with that regard as well. but the overall um aspect of about and the myth that I tried to dispel, which is important for people to understand that you know that how this was done, uh, particularly with families, and the violence aspect of it was simply like I alluded to earlier, if I could take three hundred thousand dollars of some guy's money and turn it into fifteen million in eight days. Dude, these guys aren't shooting at me. Right, And if you take that math and you'd go a little further with it, it helps explain it even a little bit better. Puts it all into context. At that level, there is no violence because there simply doesn't need to be. You take that $10 million that this guy just made – you minus his $300,000 $300, initial investment and you come up with a number like 27, I think it is. Well, what that means in real terms is that I can bring the next 26 loads in and lose all 26 of them. Right. All I have to do is get that 27th one in and he still made money. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's the staggering mu- about, uh, you know um, association with the numbers. So I've never lost a load. Most of us guys never have. There were – and, you know, but there were guys out there doing it. And I'm not saying, you know, up around in Georgia and North Carolina and places like that up, you know, in the Gulf Coast area that there weren't guys smuggling pot. Well, of course there were. I don't take anything away from anybody with that regard. All I'm simply saying by way of telling the story is that we were the only ones able to integrate it into a way of life spanning three generations and not fired one single shot at anybody, proving that it can be done that way. There is a way to do that. And the numbers dictate that. Where it starts to get violent is where we turn this stuff loose and it gets up into into Cleveland or Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or someplace like that. And you get some little punk that's, you know, head of his own little click gang or whatever the hell you want to call it, has um, got all his money tied up in this bundle of weed. That he just purchased. Now you lose that. Yeah, he's going to get pissed, and he's going to come at you, and they're going to do those stupid things right. that they do. But in my case, it's simply it was simply a matter of you know mathematics.
0: You had the margin that could give you the buffer.
1: Yeah. If I lost a love, the guy just said, "Dude, go back and get another one." You know. Hmm. You know, I've st- I made fifteen million on three hundred. I made ten million, nine million, seven hundred thousand on three hundred thousand dollars. Dude, go back and get more. You know, but and I was asked this too about losing loads. You know, I said no, none that we've. You know, there were guys losing them because we were picking up their some nights. You know, square groupers. Yeah, yeah. Free money, man. That was that's a whole other story in itself, right there. But um, I told him, you know, I'd never lost any that I never gave away, and I had one of the supervisors for United States Customs, John D C. is his name. Just a great guy, one of my dearest friends. Even today, one of my dearest friends. The guy tried to chase me and put me away for life, man. Can you imagine how the irony <laughs> you going to share this with him? <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Hey, John. Absolutely. You know, yeah, he's in on all of it. He did a, a Vice Land video with me that's oh. got nearly 90 million views worldwide. Wow. Um, he, you know, and the, his stance and his take on it is the same as everybody else's now. You know, it's, it was a waste of time. And you know because you know we proved that the sheer volume that we're talking about – and like I said, I never lost one that I didn't give away. And the reason that being is that if I can buy it for $10 a pound and I take 170000 or even $200,000 of my own money and put 20,000 pounds of shit on somebody's old rickety-ass boat off of, off of Naples or Marcos somewhere like this and have one of my crew on the island call – Hey, I think there's boats running around here without lights on and stuff. Maybe you ought to come and check it out. And they score that boat out there. Next thing you know, that focus is that boat. Well, I'm moving thirty tons in down here in the Everglades. <laughs> right, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That only cost me two hundred grand. I just made three million. What do I care? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that was just the craziness of it. Huh. You know, you lure them up there and keep them busy, and I moved thirty tons in down here while they're up. there all, all doing their big shot, patting themselves on the backs and. <laughs>
0: so I don't want to go too too far into this, but this stuff was packaged in these big squares that were how many
1: pounds? Yeah, between sixty and seventy pounds. Was this it, was
0: it packed real tight, and then so when it came out and it was broken down, it was all that sort of you know brickweed we used to call it, or no. was it not that bricky?
1: No, it wasn't that bricky. It was it was actually you know take care of it, and you know, and it's funny you should say that. I will just ex- explain this one aspect really quick to you. When, when I first started as a kid. The bales in those years, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the bales were coming to us in what we called pillow bales. They weren't compressed at all. Okay. They were put inside a plastic bag and it compressed about as much as somebody could push on it with yeah, their just, foot. Right. And then they would d- duct tape that plastic bag together and then stick it in a burlap sack behind that, then stitch it shut. So in the earlier days, these pillow bales we were getting were coming all different sizes and shapes, and they were just so awkward to handle. And by the time we'd gotten them, they'd already been handled two or three times, and some of them were coming apart. And we got literally buds and seed and shit stuck to our faces, you know, because we're sweating in these boats and we were we have uh, our entire bodies are stained black from the resin dust flying through the air yeah, yeah. you know just exposed to this uh-huh. stuff sticky well, as hell <laughs> it's our responsibility from the time we take it off the mothership to get it to miami and anywhere along the line you know it's quite a logistical nightmare for one thing, just to move the stuff, but to clean up afterwards, yeah, we were literally at those t- at those times, when I was part of the job my my job was going offshore and loading freighters and coming back That was my my position in this thing well if, once our boat is emptied, and this stuff's on its way in through the islands and into somebody's house that we've taken all the furniture out of, that's how we do this. We stuff somebody's house full, well, we go offshore to clean up we've got screwdrivers and knives and getting seeds out of so little spots the, and yeah, little places and yeah. shit. Because if somebody gets word of something and all of a sudden they're out there and start stopping boats and they find one seed on your boat, you're done. Yeah. You're smoked. So we're saying to ourselves, okay, this stuff is not getting any better. So we started lining the interior of our vessel you know, ah, with this queen, yeah. taping it down with duct tape. And then you just throw that away. Pull it up into one piece and tie an anchor and a chain to it and throw the shit overboard, you know. And, but still, it's it was a pain in the in in the ass. And we're thinking, look, we're responsible for your material. And at that time in the early '80s was was the advent of the uh, industrial and household trash compactors first started coming on the scene. Okay. So a couple of the first and second generations of our families got together and decided, okay, well here, look. We took about a dozen of these compactors and about three generators down there to the jungle and said, look, here's what you need to do. They started doing this stuff and packing this. Now they're in perfect size. They fit. They, they stack. They stack perfectly. Now we're getting more weight. They're easier to handle. The jobs are going quicker. They're moving more material. And the the shape of a bale looks today the way it does because we're the ones responsible for it. <laughs> Taking that compactor down there to, to, and turning them loose—that
0: <laughs> is hilarious, man. I'm so glad I asked you that question. Um, let's go to your second song.
1: All right, what is it? Which one is this one? You got. Um, uh, you oh, got let's do the uh, uh, Lagrange. Okay, that Lagrange. Was, that's a cool one there.
0: What's the from ZZ
1: Top? What's yeah, the story? Um, I had I had guys come to me all different kinds of ways, you know, um, to move material for them, and. Um, one of the one of the ways of doing it in those days, it, particularly if guys were interested in the higher quality material, higher quality stuff out of Colombia or even Panama, we had to go inland to the higher elevations to get the the Punto Roja, which is in Colombia, which is in the higher elevations, hmm. it's north of just in the, in the Santa Marta region. Um, Punto Roja is a uh, higher elevation um, plant that grows a little more potent. So there's not there's not as much of it to fill a freighter. Besides, you couldn't get it; you'd have to truck it to the coast to get it right. from the highlands to the freighter. So it was perfectly suited for DC3s in those days right. they would fly old out of work Vietnam pilots. Yeah, yeah, flying DC3s. But you hear the stories. Yeah. 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 And so this guy comes to me one day and says, he wants to do this. He's got it all figured out, but he doesn't want to land his plane. He doesn't want to unload and land a plane. I said, well, you know, what a problem. So I told him exactly how we're going to do this. You come in. Whenever you come in, you radio, make radio contact from me. And in those days, you could literally – you know, you've heard the expression flying under the radar. Yeah, yeah. In those days, you could literally fly under the radar. Because of the way they were you – know, their, their aspect to the sky was, if the plane was flying low enough to the ground, it wouldn't show up on the radar. So these guys have got 6,000 pounds of this Punto Roja, some really nice stuff. Expensive stuff, so it makes up in volume. What does it in-
0: come in at a pound instead of ten dollars at that time?
1: Well, the, they're buying it now for sixty to eighty dollars. Okay, so it's got eight, so seven it's times a, more significantly yeah. more. You know, more pricey, but the smaller the load makes it feasible enough for them because of the return that they sure, get. Sure, sure. So you know, and a DC three only holds six thousand pounds. That's the limit. Plus the fuel and the and these – so these guys were right on the edge of – I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had some cojones, right? So here they're flying this in, and what they need to do when they get, you know, within United States air, airspace is to drop that bitch down to about 200 feet and fly just above the trees. And this takes a lot of fuel. So, I, you know, we went through the scenario about how to do it. We're going to drop it in Gullivan Bay, which is just south of Cape Romano. Uh, mm-hmm. between Everglades City uh-huh. and, 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 and Marco Island. And uh, that's the entrance uh, to Goodland right mm-hmm. there. So what we decided to do was um, have you come in early in the morning, You know, time it to where you're coming in just after sun breaks in the morning, uh, drop the stuff, and at that time of year was the time of year when we were starting to bring our traps in from out offshore. Well, when you put traps on the boat, You you know, the boats tend to ride bow heavy, Mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like this. So simply what we did was I said, we'll take your 6,000 pounds, we'll stuff it down below deck. We'll put it in the bow, in the build sections, in the midship holds. And we took about 40 empty fish boxes and put them all together, which weigh virtually nothing, and made this big square stack out of them. And two days prior, we had about 400 traps sitting offshore, that we would stack around these boxes to make it look like we had a full load of traps on the boat. Right, right. So when we put the 6,000 pounds in the it bow section, like it, it was look. bow heavy right. and it looked like it should uh, look. <laughs>
0: huh, huh, huh. And we
1: drove it right to the dock. Wow. <laughs> right, past, right past Dan's little bar, waving at everybody like this with 6,000 pounds of this shit in it. And um, we're sitting out there waiting for this to happen. And it's, you know, quiet morning. It was one of those mornings where... You could not distinguish the sky from the, from the water. It was just a beautiful, one of those calm mornings. And all of a sudden, this kid, I had hired this captain and his buddies uh, from Marathon who hadn't worked in a while. I said, come on up. I got something we can do. You know, it was just a quick, short, everybody, make some money and go home uh, in one day. So they came up and we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, this kid goes, he sits up. And I, I think I hear something. So we all run out on the on the back of the boat and we turn and we're trying to listen and all of a sudden we see this thing coming and it was right over the trees, yeah, over the mangoes. Yeah. This uh this badass D C three with uh twin uh turbo uh and twin uh twelve hundred Pratt Whitney's just cranking, man. These things are like, whoa, busting wide open just to keep this thing in the air, right? And he made a pass over us just to make sure that this was the right spot. We're waving, and here's these two clowns hanging out of the cargo (laughs) door with suicide straps around their hands, and they've got the leather helmets on with the goggles on, Mm -hmm. screaming, and they went made a pass by us, and the only thing that left behind that that pass was the badass chill down my back and the smell of sped aviation fuel as they went out and made a turn and came back and they started kicking these things out 20 bales at a time and they're just flipping through the air and they're tumbling and splashing and you know and they're you know it's just the coolest thing man the whole thing from the time we saw the plane to the time he made his first pass then he made his next pass to dump the first half made a second pass to dump the second half and took off inland to go land the whole thing took probably four minutes. Wow! So when he started, when he was on his last pass to make sure we weren't going to get, you know, twenty bales dropped on our heads, we fired up the boat and took off. That's when Lagrange we put Lagrange and started playing it out on the deck, just cranking it. Oh! And we man. went up, and each of the bales, as they were kicked the out, they had a they row. had fifteen foot of trap line well, that, that we used to pull our traps down. with, and a buoy on them. So the bales were floating, each had a buoy. So we had to just reach out there and pull them like traps, pull them up through, and just throw them and load them on the boat, just one right after the other. And the whole time we're doing this, we're cranking Lagrange on the deck. Man, had a blast. (laughs) Well, let's let's listen to it,
0: imagining that. Geez, this is Lagrange by ZZ Top from their uh, 1973 album Trace Umbre. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that bring you back? Nice. Yeah, <laughs> put me right on the back of that boat, man. That, uh, was, that was a riot.
0: Uh, did you do that kind of deal very often, where there was a plane involved, or was that not an outlier? That
1: was just one of really a very few, um, because the you know the sheer volumes of s- stuff we were working with, a lot of it didn't fit on a plane,
0: man. Yeah, yeah. You Six thousand pounds is little compared to
1: the other loads. Yeah, you know, and that was right at the limit of what that plane could. Could, could fly with. I mean, they were just, I mean, they were breaking records, you know, for one thing. But um, it wasn't uncommon for me to go offshore as a kid doing, you know, unloading freighters from wherever they came from, Columbia, um, Central America. We've had boats come from Jamaica. Um, and I've seen as much as two and three hundred thousand pounds on a ship at one time. Hmm. And we would make trips back and forth. You know, it was in the earlier days, it wasn't such a big deal to go to approach a vessel twice. But then it got to be after they started getting a little more sophisticated with their techniques with regards to AWACS was flying out there at some point in time, keeping a little bit closer tabs on things that were going on, you know, made it difficult and made it a little bit um, less agreeable to approach a boat more than once. So none of us really wanted to do that.
0: Hmm. Um, do you remember the first time you came across weed that just didn't have any seeds in it? You know what I mean. Yeah. Like there was a point in time where there was no such thing. And then all of a sudden there was. And it was like, I remember I, there was these guys from Canada that came down and they smoked some of our pot and they were like, you guys got seeds? And we were like, you guys don't got seeds?
1: Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah that BC bug. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, the only time that ever occurred for us was when some of the guys, you know, that I grew up with were, I mean, some of these guys were Jedi growers. Yeah. You know, even before there was such a thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to to create the male plant, the Sensomia, you know, and the icky, sticky purple plant stuff was, you know, was was a trick. Yeah. And, you know, we would get that, you know, about every summertime, you know would be the perfect time for, you know, to grow something like that. But it was rare Yeah, in, in those days. Because,
0: and now it's on the shelf at the store that you go to. Right. How does that feel for you to well, be here now being through what you went through and all the ways the world's
1: changed? It's, it's definitely an irony, to put it, you know, bluntly and mildly, um, to be facing, you know, someone t- who have been facing multiple life sentences for such a thing and now I, uh, I have a medical card in my pocket where I can go into, you know, any one of five different dispensaries in Benita and, you know, and purchase what it is I want legally. Right. Um, none of us had any inclination that, you know, anything of this sort would take, would, would, have, would have surfaced in our lifetime.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's quite a, it's quite an, it's quite an achievement, you know, when you consider that. You know, doing the things that we did and and justifying them in the way that we did them. Now, I'm not in any way promoting smuggling. You know, of course, it's illegal. And um, that being said, a lot of people that I run into like to use the word um, criminal to describe what it was we were doing. We prefer to use the word outlaw. Because in our, from our point of view, they have two different definitions. Criminal being the fact that, you know, okay, yeah, I could have very well been a criminal had it been some other crime that, you know, society frowns upon as, an enti- as a whole. We consider ourselves outlaw working outside the law that you created that we don't necessarily agree with. You know, and millions of people don't necessarily agree with it either because, you know, I got to ask you, scrape point blank. And I've asked this to a number of, of law enforcement agencies and upper you know, high officials over the years that, you know, we were literally bringing in millions of pounds. And this is, you know, this is no joke. I uh, one of the chapters in my book. I wrote about having uh, our crew working 28 nights in a row. Some of the guys would uh, would say that that was, you know, there were more nights than that. But I left it at 28 nights and did, did a quick rough calculation to the tune of 1.6 million pounds in about a month's work. And... That was going somewhere exactly. You know, <laughs> I mean, it is that we couldn't get it in here fast enough. Yeah, you know, and that's what one of the guys, the defendants, I was sitting being arraigned with, all seven of us. This little guy Teddy standing next to me, and a judge looks at us and she goes, "You know, the men and women of this country didn't fight World War One, World War Two, and Korea and Vietnam for you to mess it up with drugs." You know, and she says, "I have a mission beyond my job." This this woman was serious dude I mean she was hot she had purple veins sticking out of her forehead <laughs> and Teddy standing next to me and goes well I gotta tell you man you ma'am, you want to give us life in prison for something we couldn't get that shit in here fast enough he <laughs> said I'm like, we're all looking behind us at our attorneys and they're all going like this you know putting their hand across their throat going shut the up <laughs> <laughs> and he's like what are we gonna what's she gonna do now you yeah. know life in prison she can't eat me you know, so just he's going to hear what I got to say. You know, it was it was true. I mean, all this millions of pounds and, you know, it wasn't till and, you know, I got to looking back on all this in retrospect and I was, you know, considering the sheer amounts that I was involved in that I had seen in and not in just in weed, but in money. Yeah. I mean, the ungodly amounts of money that were, you know, at our disposal. And, you know. Had I been a little bit older, a little bit wiser, of course, everything's here we are in retrospect. You know, some good things could have been done with that money, you know. But we were making so much of it at the time. And the way we were growing up, it was just, you know, Jimmy Buffett said it really well. You know, making enough money to— by Miami, but I pissed it away so (laughs) fast. And you'd be surprised how quickly you can piss it away. So you were sentenced to how many... What was your sentence? My sentence was, well, if we start from the beginning, when I was originally indicted, I had had four indictments, uh, four counts on each indictment. Each count had a mandatory 10 years to life and a million-dollar fine attached to it. So that's 16... Counts sixteen mandatory ten years to life. One hundred and sixty years. One hundred and sixty years mandatory to life, and sixteen million dollars in fines. Through all the negotiating, if you will, for the lack of a better way of putting it, um, over the next ten months or so in county jail, locked up in Fort Myers, the United States Treasury and and the investigators, United States District Attorney's Office. Uh, Had brought me out of my cell on numerous occasions to interview me, uh, originally wanting cooperation, which is something that couldn't happen on my end of it because, you know, although we weren't weren't violent in any aspect of what it was we were doing ever, never carried guns, never, ever. But you go throwing some Cubans or some Colombians under the bus and they're going to wind up doing exactly what they're very good at. And that's coming after you and finding your family and everybody associated with you and doing exactly what they do best. Mm-hmm. So that obviously wasn't happening. But what I was able to do at that time was describe the scenarios and how they worked and what we were doing and how we were doing it. And if you could figure out names from that, God bless you. But you're not getting them out of me because that's a death sentence. Right. And one of the things that people need to understand about this whole thing, and you know, it, it just irks me to death when people use the word rat. You know um, or you know, any other silly connotation that, that refers to you know somebody telling on somebody else in order to get a lighter sentence. Well this is this is, this is you know and honor among thieves. Mm-hmm. Well let me tell you, there were over 257 kids under the age of 25 we're talking about. Now, even the United States government, all its benevolence, had the, had the presence of mind to understand that you cannot put a bunch of kids away for life in prison for such a thing. They even knew it at that time. So what they did, as a matter of fact, by design rather than accident, was give everybody a way out. And the way out was tell on your friends give up everything you know about what it is that went on, and now we have the ability to sentence you below these ridiculous mandatory minimum sentences that are going to put you away for a very seriously long time. That being said, what was given out as a matter of course was, okay, we will give you immunity from prosecution, from everything that you've had your hands involved in except for one little thing we'll hold in reserve. That way we can Give you a little slap on the wrist when the time comes. But without that, we can't do that. But we can give you immunity and here we go. So this immunity clause having been interjected into the whole scene now, if they're coming after you, dude, and they're saying your name, I'm telling you, look, make this deal with them. Cooperate with them because they're going to give you immunity. Now, you can give them Jimmy and Teddy and Willie's name because they already took the deal. Right. They have immunity. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. can't hurt them. Right. So everybody – that opened everybody,
0: the, to, everybody told on everybody that, local.
1: Exactly. That opened the door for everybody to have the ability to do that and not hurt one another but still get out from under multiple life sentences. Now, it didn't matter to the government at the time that they were hearing a lot of the same names over and over again. All that told them was that they're getting the right people. yeah. You know, so yeah. when it came to a guy like me. Everybody like his, and I and we talked, you know, um, off air earlier about most of the guys involved because there were so many of them. Didn't care whose job it was. All they got, all they cared about was getting paid. So, my presence as the individual making these runs to Columbia and buying, making these purchases and negotiating these deals. Very, very few people knew that. But in the overall scheme of things, when somebody starts. Yuck, 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 talking. Eventually, the names and the words and things get around and pieces of a puzzle get put together. And there was only one way for me to go when it came to cooperation. That was, who you talking to in Miami, those Cuban people, and who you flying across the Caribbean to see every month, you know, two or three times a month? You're to Jamaica. You're in Central America. You're in South America. Well, that wasn't happening, you know. So I had to bite my tongue and take my might take my licks. But my saving grace came by way of them wanting to know, after all, how I was able – actually, how we were all able to do this for more than a decade and they couldn't catch us.
0: Right. And they I, wanted
1: the mechanics of what you were I doing. And I said, well, I can tell you that. I can – you know, you got a couple of – you know, a couple of weeks, I'll tell you exactly how stupid you people are. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to law enforcement as a whole. But, you know, when you're talking about something as – you know, the sheer amounts that we're talking about and – and and my having asked these two uh, agents from the U- United States Treasury Office, do you understand? My first question is back to them, where do you understand the geography of Everglades City? Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, well, how many roads in and out of there are there? Well, there's one. Yeah, the Highway 29. There's only one road in there. Now, how many direct links between that little town and Miami are there? There's one, US 41. And I looked him dead straight in the eye and I said, now, how do you think I got all those millions of pounds of shit in Miami? I didn't get, take them over there on the backs of pelicans and porpoises, man. <laughs> they went right across. They went right down that road and we were probably waving at you the whole time. You know, hide in plain sight was, you know, was what we were very good and we were masters at. So my saving grace came by way of being able to tell them how this was all done and the mechanics of it all. But it still wound up giving me a 10-year mandatory sentence because they didn't consider it substantial enough. They mm-hmm. wanted to know who's who like yeah, that. And yeah, I said, yeah. no, nah, there ain't no freaking way. Huh. Because now we're talking about people and we're talking about people like um, the president of Panama, Noyega. Mm-hmm. I worked for this guy three times. Mm. And one of the stories that I wrote about is in the book, mm. um, Saltwater Cowboy. The rise and fall of a marijuana <sighs> empire. In case that didn't get out, <laughs> Amazon.com. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and Mobile are in the Um Available on Kindle and Audible, by the way. Um, but also,
0: uh, uh, Tara, Tara and I have decided in here that uh, for your biopic, they need to tap Mickey Rourke. Yes.
2: <laughs> uh, and
0: and that the story the story in the lead up to Lagrange uh, about uh, with with the plane dropping uh the bricks right. that's that's the trailer like, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> yeah, <incredible.
1: okay. laughs> have at it man you have, you have full license
0: <laughs> uh, okay let's move on to the third song okay um was this we, Jimmy are... buffet Jimmy I'm buffet kidding.
1: yeah. <laughs> That's the guy, a guy he French was a musician. Yeah. <laughs> we met him at the Lagrange restaurant. Oh wow, the French re- <laughs> <laughs> That's great) <laughs> <laughs> No, Jimmy, yeah, that was kind of an unusual little little thing going on there. Um, this is okay. I, after I've been in prison for several years now. Uh, I was at the Federal Correctional institution in tallahassee okay is where i is where I served uh, uh, the vast majority of my sentencing um, it is a medium security prison meaning it 's a level four five The next level is a five six which is maximum security. I was put in there because I was considered a flight risk. And uh, the circumstances involving the reason why I was considered as flight risk are a little bit ridiculous, but I'm not going to go there. It's a whole other, whole other different affair. But anyways, um, this was an old like uh, – have you ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption uh-huh. kind of a thing? Uh, several of the buildings were barred and selled in that fashion. The rest of the prison was such an older prison where it was done in a dormitory style fashion, mm-hmm. where 175 convicts live on one side, and 175 convicts live on another side of the unit. In between the units are the areas for the guards and the and the counselors and the people and whatever. They're your team, they call it. Well, inside this 175 person room are individual cubicles like office cubicles with two bunks you know a bunk bed in each one and a table and desk and all that kind of crap in there so uh that being said if you had any problem with any one of these guys you didn't care who it was because you're it doesn't make any difference what you're in there for you're all treated the same and at a four or five level institution you're in there with some badass guys and regardless of what you're in there for you're treated like i said you're treated the same Um, there are different levels within the Federal Bureau of Prisons which allow you to take advantage of um, your good time, you know, if your good behavior and things like that. My level was four or five, meaning I was a security risk. And as you go through your sentencing and your time passes, and you meet your team and they reevaluate your your conduct so far for however many years, they reduce your level of custody, meaning. Um, they could drop you, say, from a level four to a level three two, mm-hmm. meaning you have a little more freedom. Yeah. Now, the prison I was in was uh, was operated under what they call a controlled movement. You didn't move until the guy on the big announcement said, "It's the move is on. It's time to move." You have four minutes to get before every hour. You have four minutes to get from wherever you are to wherever you need to be before everything locks down on you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that goes on between the hours of six a.m. in the morning till four o'clock at after four o'clock count at night. So um, everybody has a place. Everybody has a place to be, and everybody works. If you're in prison, I don't care what you're in there for. You get a job doing something. Whether it's cleaning floors, if it's construction, if it's in the kitchen working, you know, cooking, whatever the case may be. Right. Uh, depending on your custody level, if you get down to a one or a two custody level, which which allows you to become a trustee of sorts, to work in the offices and things like that, you know, mm-hmm. everybody has a position um, according to whatever custody level you're assigned. Now, um, in this case, uh, a um, <laughs> guy named John was uh a trustee to the warden you know he had been arrested for marijuana smuggling and had a little bit of thing going on himself down in the keys and wound up getting himself uh i believe it was 17 years and he was in 6 years prior to my getting there okay and he was he wound up being you know a good guy and just and that working up front in, in the uh, in the administration offices where you know he would take his lunch outside the front door yeah. You know, go sit at a picnic table out front, you know, with those civilians and have your lunch and come back in and mop the floors and do whatever. Well um he had always had the wardens ear, of course. And the warden was wasn't too bad of a guy, you know, and um you know, as wardens go, but um he's still the man. So all this time but well, this guy's telling him, you know, you know Jimmy Buffett was just a good friend of mine. And actually, I helped him get into his career, getting, you know, getting seed money to get his band started, get going down in the Keys. And he kind of owes me a bit of a favor, you know. So he had the warden's ear for several weeks about Jimmy, want, you know, coming and playing hmm. for the prison inmates. Said he would be no problem, you know. He would be glad to do it. Well, the warden kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, and eventually he relented, got a hold of him. And they set up this gig for – Jimmy and the Coral Reefers to come in and they pulled a flatbed trailer truck into the into the uh the lower compound where our softball fields and baseball fields were. And they set up out there and uh they began to jam for every for eleven hundred inmates. A literally a literal captive audience. Mm. And um um went through the went through the show and had a great time and uh, actually, the song that we're going to play that I requested uh, was requested many a times by a lot of the inmates. I it was can called imagine. A, a Pirate looks at forty. Yeah. So, um, real quickly uh, after the show, everything was great. You know, a week or so went by, and you know, it just this that sort of thing just does something for the the, the entire air that, that's about yeah, you. Yeah, I, I can and imagine. And um, it didn't take long, about two weeks after that, I guess nobody really could figure out what what took place and what prompted it. but uh, uh, Jimmy Johnny wind, winds up uh, working one day. Of course he's like, a, like I said, he's a trustee he's cleaning the warden's office, picks up the phone, or dials the number to a taxi service, orders a taxi, comes to the prison, he walks out gets his taxi, and drives off.
0: Oh boy. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> hears
1: another word from him since, and and I had since gotten out. He's escaped. I had since gotten out since, and I don't know if they, if they ever caught him or they ever found him again. That's the last you ever saw. him? That's the last we ever saw of him. And then it was right around Christmas holidays. Wow! And that's when the warden comes around and he passes out his little gifty things. You know, and he's got this keychain chained with all these keys. This is his bells so he's jing like this. Well. I think somehow the, the the spirit of the season got a little bit knocked out of the warden. You know, <laughs> I can imagine he wasn't all that he wasn't all that into Christmas that year. But um, we're all uh, when I hear uh, when I hear this this song in particular, "Pirate Looks at Forty, this brings back more than just that. It brings back my in, you know my entire career as a, as a kid growing up in this industry.
0: How old would you have been right then in prison when this concert happened? How close to 40 were you looking? I
1: wasn't anywhere near 40 yet. I was still a kid. 40 was a long way off. Yeah, yeah. I was 20, 20, 27, I think. Huh. When this this took place. Well,
0: shall we? Yeah, let's crank it up. Uh, Pirate Looks 40, Jimmy Buffett, a 1974
1: album, A1A. time I hear it, it just it just takes that anxiety in, in everything that I experienced through all that I did. Some songs bring me, you know, bring me to places where I get that urge to, you know, to, to start, you know, shaking and wondering what the hell were you thinking, but then I, I hear a Jimmy Buffett song and regardless of what it is, it 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 gives me, like I said, that little bit of decompression, that little bit of relief and you know, puts me in a comfortable area. Because there was so much, I guess, of a hectic life going on, that at times you don't have you don't have the ability to bring yourself to this place on your own. When I start hearing something like that, it always does it every time. It's great.
0: You know, I I like that song a lot. I've heard it many times over the years, but there's something about listening to it. You know, everybody who hears that song who likes Jimmy Buffett kind of feels like they kind of know what was like. But you like. I mean, you you do know what it right. was like, you know, it, it in a different way.
1: Th- the song, actually, in, in the way it's written, and the tone in which it's written, and and um, the the subject matter mm-hmm. puts it all in a whole different perspective. It gives you that more laid back kind of feeling, and that's something that you know. As I was doing all this writing and and all this media work that I do, and and these. Uh, um, meeting great people like yourself and being able to, you know, to help people understand the old stigma and, and how they should actually understand it rather than the way they're, they're, you know, it's been taught to them over the years. Um, this laid back kind of attitude now that people are finally have the ability to, to make a choice and to make a legal responsible choice. Um, they should actually be coming into it with the knowledge of how it used to be done, you know, and when you think about you know sitting down and if it's if it's if smoking a joint for the first time or if it's taking an edible or if it's taking some medication, um, you know even CBD or any kind of derivative of the plant itself, you want to go into it uh, with a notion of knowing that this very cool rasta dude man, you yeah. know, sitting back with a you know smoking on a spliff under a palm tree or. Um, a little Colombian guy and his family all in their white cotton suits with the, with the white, you know, large-brimmed hats out there picking in the fields and stuff, you know. Not this crap you see on the news about what's taking place on our southern border. Mm-hmm. Nothing could be more misrepresentative of this culture than what's taking place there. So for people to have already, right, you know, not having a, a, um, experienced the shift in consciousness that occurs when you, when you take a... A substance such as cannabis, you're already on a pre-anxietal state. You know that's that's unavoidable. So why not try to go into it with the knowledge that you know this death and mayhem and destruction isn't accompanying what it is you're trying, you're you're uh, you're uh, going to partake in. Come into it knowing that it was just the coolest thing. Hmm. You know and get that vibe the way it should have.
0: There's a line in there, never meant to last. Uh, You know, for you, it was never meant to last. Was it easy to to leave it behind once you got out?
1: Yeah, especially after the... Federal magistrate at that time, Elizabeth Kavakovich, looked me dead in the eye and said, Mr. McBride, if I ever hear or see of you in any other federal courtroom in the United States for this kind of thing, I will warehouse you for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much of a deterrent for Do me right there. Her? <laughs> oh, damn right I believed her, man. She held my cojones right in her hand. She had the ability to send me away for the rest of my life or appreciate the fact that I had to that I stepped up and was able to give them the kind of information that was invaluable to them with regards to how this whole operation took place and how it all worked from beginning to end. And understanding that and knowing what I know now, the paradigm shift that had taken place that when they stopped the cocaine cowboys in Miami from destroying our country with cocaine and all that was taking place over there, and Miami being the murder capital of the world, barring any other conflict or war taking place on this planet, Miami was the most dangerous place in the world to be at that time, and then taking and turning their focus onto us after that was done, and saying let's going to stem the 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 importation of marijuana at the same time." Now, in 1988, between 1988 and 1990, that's when that all took place. Mm-hmm. The huge paradigm shift that, t- that takes place in that point in time in history is the simple fact that no more Caribbean marijuana came into the country beyond our arrests, beyond Operation Peacemaker. Hmm. When they took nearly 300 of my crew and people that worked in association with Caribbean marijuana out of the picture, it stopped coming into this country. It ended. What took place now was the Sinaloa cartel stepped up, and they'd been around for quite a while. There was nothing new about these guys; they'd been around since the early '60s. Now, all of a sudden, they have the they have this resource available to them, this corridor, if you will. Mm-hmm. Now, the cocaine they would take the cocaine because they couldn't grow the coca plant in Mexico. They they could grow the poppy plant and create their own and make their own heroin. They didn't want the Colombian and the Caribbean weed because they had their own. Right. Brick weed, which you alluded to earlier. Yeah, yeah. So what happens now since the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s, is what happens to the Caribbean and the Colombian weed? Well, it's been going to North Africa and into Europe. Hmm. That's where it's all been going from that point on. And everything here's coming from Mexico Everyth- or I
0: guess now everywhere or that- Canada and it's being grown
1: commercially. Right. During that paradigm shift, that period we're talking about, which is late 80s, you know, scrubbing over into the early 90s, during that period was when the advent of the brick weeds showed up and now they're pouring it across our our lines and then From that point on, it didn't take very long. That's when California finally came on board in 1996 Mm -hmm. with the legalization of medical cannabis and the growing of that. Now, um, that's what started this whole movement. But taking us out of the picture and turning it over to the cartels now – what happens what happened by way of that? It didn't only inspire um, us as Americans to produce our own product, which is the homegrown seedless cannabis that we have now, which isn't your daddy's weed no more. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Um, the uh, The cartels, the Sinaloa, Sinaloa cartel. out of that cartel springs the Ariano Felix Brothers, which is the Tijuana cartel. And from that cartel springs the Juarez cartel. And the next cartel to spring up was the Gulf Cartel. Mm. Now out of these four cartels, they each have a position in a spot along our southern border. And they're vying for these points of points of entry. Because by um, by Normal standards or normal thinking that they're, you know, they're rowing this stuff across the Rio Grande and they're bringing it. Well, no, they're not. They're, you know, that's very little of it happens that way. It's being brought through those those traditional crossings in trucks and cars and vans and whatever have you. And it is literally a a war of attrition, the same war we were fighting. Yeah. As long as one of the 20 get through, then they've made a profit. Exactly. You throw enough. at them, you're, eventually you're going to get it through, right? You know, and you're going to keep the demand, you know, f- you know, proper. And that's just how it took place. So out of that sprung all of that him- 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 and mess that's taking place in Mexico, hmm. because they took a, a group of people for generations who never fired one shot at them. And I asked his homeland – the supervisor for homeland security several years ago. I had a meeting with him in his office. He asked me, would you mind coming and talk to me? I'm like, I don't care. You know, (laughs) what the hell? And um, he imparted me some some very interesting things that I never knew and I kind of helped him out with some things that he had no idea of. But this in particular was the paradigm shift that he alluded to. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: When they took us out of the picture, Mexico now became the forefront and the problem. And I said, Well, you just displaced it is all you did. Yeah. Because history has shown you throughout I mean, as long as this stuff has been recorded in this fashion, okay, you take you take Escobar out of the picture and you have the Cali cartel. You have the Ocho brothers, you take the Ocho brothers out and who you get next? You get Sinaloa. You get El Chapo, you get his you know, his uncle before him. You know, so you're not doing anything. So I asked this This homeland supervisor. One simple question. Or he asked me rather. He says, How would you how would you stop this? And I said, Simple, you legalize it. You knock the wind out of it. When you took away alcohol from people for thirteen freaking years back in the twenties, and it only lasted thirteen years because you couldn't handle it, and you created guys like Al Capone and now we're talking about a nearly 90, going on ninety years almost prohibition in cannabis, and you created guys like me, but then you took it away from me and created guys like you know the Ariana felix brothers in the in the Juarez gang in, in Sinaloa. You know, how proud do you feel at this moment? (laughs) And he said, I wish they'd just legalize it and be done with it. You know, I've always
0: thought of the war on marijuana as like, um, it's like alchemy. You know, you can take lead and turn it into gold. You're taking a plant that you were getting for $10 a pound and turning it into something that's worth $500 a pound. And what's doing that is its illegality. Its scarcity is what's causing it to grow. So them fighting it gives it
1: its value. Well, yeah. When you tell somebody you can't have it, oh, they just want it all the more. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand when it comes to alcohol prohibition, there wasn't just that one that everybody re- remembers and that everybody's, you know, sees in the movies and, and what's taking place. There were actually three alcohol prohibitions that took place in this country. And there were I didn't know that. And they were uh, and they all turned out the same, very badly.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, one particular aspect, uh, one particular, um, um, prohibition took place in, uh, I believe it was um, Philadelphia. And they kept a stash of, of, of alcohol in, t- in the city hall for medicinal right, purposes. Right, Same thing we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. You know, medicinal canvas and medicinal whatever like this. Well, people couldn't handle it. They didn't want any part of it. They raided and stormed city hall and took that freaking alcohol. Right. You know? <laughs> and then the 20s come around. And they said, OK, well, we got to stop this crap again. Well, that lasted 13 years. And look what it got them. It got them absolutely nowhere. So here we are, come full circle with cannabis. You know, um, I dodged multiple life sentences, which was uh, which was ridiculous in the first place. And any every supervising agent of any agency that was involved in my arrest. And then we're talking about guys that came from CIA and Secret Service and FBI um, Customs. Um, Uh, DEA, uh, you name it, they were involved in it. Ask any one of those people today what their honest opinion about cannabis is right now and they said it was just ridiculous. They should just legalize it and be done with it. Because having asked the the supervisor for Homeland Security, one, one specific question that I thought was important for me to get answered, honestly, because all the years growing up and even the years I was smuggling, you used to hear in the evening news. They would come on and give you in percentages what they feel is their success with regards to smuggling and importation, down by 30% or 20%. I started laughing. I'm like, what's your baseline, people? Yeah. You know, because in our estimation, you know, for every one that you catch, 200 got through. Right. So, I mean, what difference do you you think you're making? Hmm. They're not making any difference at all. And I asked this guy, I said, how much. I said what do you think your success is on stopping cannabis from coming into this country on either border Canadian or or, or Mexican border and he said maybe 1% and I said thank you <laughs> I said that's that's the that's the most honest answer anyone has ever given me you know and he said you know dude I'm just being real with you yeah you know and that's when he asked me how would you solve this problem I said legalize it I said you show a picture of a beautiful medically graded bud glistening in the sun and all this wonderful, you know, God-given goodness. And then you show a picture of this poor little Mexican fellow with one strapped to his back, this burly, gnarly-looking bale of marijuana on his back that his family is probably being held hostage in lieu of. Now, which one would you want to smoke? Now, which one do you think they're going to be pointing at? They're pointing at this nice, beautiful little plant over here, so you knock the wind right out of it. Mm-hmm. You take that. You take that demand or that protocol right out of that by legalizing it. And oddly enough, here we are, five almost six years later, since I had this conversation with him what's taking place. Brickweed is almost not existent anymore um and i said i i said look if you could if I could help you know by legalizing this, if you can eliminate that ninety nine percent of that's coming across as far as marijuana or ninety percent." Of cannabis coming across the, your, our, your borders, and take that ninety percent and focus it on the ten that's killing everybody. I so said you'd have this place cleaned up in this war over in no time flat. Mm. Just and by by, like you said, by not allowing us to have it, only makes us want it even more. You miss it? You miss the old days? I'm glad the, you're, I glad glad missed you're here What I I can do that I can miss it and and I can love it in the way that I do only because I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you. Right. Had a not had a very specific sequence of events not taking place, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. But in light of that, in lieu of all of that, yeah, you know, I probably wouldn't. I'd do it all over again. You know, if I knew if I knew what I know now, yeah. you know, absolutely, I'd do it over again. Well, thank you for sharing this with us. Not at all, man. Um, I had a blast.
0: Before we go, uh, can you recommend three people who you'll share this with, who you think we could try to get as guests on it?
1: You know, uh, yeah, I gave that a little bit of thought. There's a couple of, and we, we talked earlier about interesting characters out of Everglades. Yeah. Um, one guy in particular, and um, he's a, he's an awesome guy. He's um, he has the exclusive contract with the United States government to dur- to run buggy tours in the National Cypress Preserve, hmm. Big Cypress National Preserve. He's the only one allowed in there. When there's fires going on and all that mayhem that's taking place, and you know lives are at risk, he's the guy that shuttles the firemen to and from with their equipment wow. out and back like this. He's a sixth-generation gladesman. His name's Captain Steve Markley. Okay, and. Um, we want to hook up a little afterwards. We'll give you some, I'll give you some contact information can yeah, yeah, yeah. get a hold of him. But he is um, one of the most knowledgeable, one of the most experienced persons that I know. He's my oldest friend. I've known him for going on 45 years now mm. in Everglades. Sounds perfect. One of the first guys I ever met. Um, another gentleman by the name of Steve Whitlock. Steve was uh, part of the crew working did his time, of course, in prison. Um, got pardoned, wrote the governor, and got a pardon, and he got a presidential pardon as well, and um, renounced the, you know, the things that he had done, of course, which is great. Um, but wound up becoming one of the most prolific um, fishing game artists. Oh yeah, of a, that are out there right now. Huh. He's. Um, He's right up there selling his stuff in Bass Pro Shops all over the country next to next to Guy Harvey. Cool. This is Steve, and he got this um, this skill set in prison. Huh. It took going through all of that and coming out the other side, and it just goes to show you that you know these people that I grew up with. You know, think what you will. Allow the. Uh, stigma to to permeate you in whatever fashion it was that society programmed into you, but uh, do yourself a favor and um, open your mind a little bit to the possibilities of you know at least reading the book and understanding the true history and that history is now required text here in several classes being taught here. That's at how FGCU. we found you. <laughs> yeah, thanks to Sam Law, <laughs> Which is very cool and and that for that reason and that reason alone is I don't support and I don't pop, you know, and I don't uh, you know, I don't um, advocate smuggling in any way. Of of course, you know, because it was, you know, uh, Government stance and the state stance on that sort of thing—they frown on that, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I explained our reasons for and justifications for that very thing. But um, Steve, being the guy he is, he does some amazing work—very awesome work. And one other guy would be a stretch. Now, I don't—I've talked to this gentleman one time, and um, he—he may be difficult to get a hold of, but he's he's, not—he's not impossible. He is, in my opinion, um, my hero his name is Rick Simpson you may be familiar with this guy he's from Saskatchewan Canada okay he is responsible for creating what we now call an as e- an extract called RSL mm-hmm. rick simpson oil this is the pure cannabis extract pure cannabis oil and it's it's important for people to understand now that Um, Cannabis, regardless of what people may think and regardless of the history and the stigma that's been placed on it, does absolutely have a medical value to it. One of the things that the government will not ever tell you and they'll not ever apologize to you for is doing what they did to this little plant by way of putting it on a schedule one, making it a schedule one narcotic which could be further from the truth because the only two prerequisites that allow something to become a Schedule I narcotic is, number one, it has no medicinal value whatsoever, and number two, it has a high propensity for abuse. Now, neither one could be (laughs) further from the freaking truth. What they're doing by way of this is a propaganda ploy that they've been doing all along. And they still have to continue doing it because until they change the language of the law that they have written, they're still bound by that language. So it's up to us as individuals and voters and people and of, 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 you know, citizens of the United States to make sure that that language gets changed because you would be surprised how many of those congressmen and those legislatures are – of course. Yeah. I mean one day their lives may very well depend on the very thing that they've, that they've you know been so robust in, in fighting all these years. But now that the science is becoming true science, they're understanding that, oh, yeah, there's a value to this. Yeah. And Rick uh-huh. Simpson – it's the godfather of cannabis oil. Okay, we'll, we'll try. He would, yeah, he's, he would be a tough one to get. But it's not new science; it's suppressed science. It's science that the United States government, believe it or not, is the only entity here in, in North America, probably in the world, that holds two use patents for cannabinoids. Now, why in the hell would our United States government hold use patents for cannabinoids if they didn't think there was any medicinal value whatsoever? So one contradiction after another, mm-hmm. and I could continue on with this podcast for another three <laughs> hours with well, that regard as well. But you know that's just the short, you know, the short. We uh, we might condensers. have to have you back
0: and... in for another podcast idea. No, that We have. Yeah, um, I'd love
1: to. That'd be great. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Oh, dude, uh, we, I just, we really appreciate it. I, I I appreciate being here, and I I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, to talk about my book, um, Saltwater Cowboy: The Rise and Fall of a Marijuana Empire. Um, available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Bar Zenobia, if you're lucky to get a copy that hasn't sold out already. Um, uh, well, thank you so much. Well, thank you again.
0: We make three song stories in the WGCU studios at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and sometimes host. Chris Duffis is our executive producer and future guest. Our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. If you like what we're up to, and you clearly must because you're listening to the credits, please find us and like us on social media or on Facebook and Instagram, and rate us on iTunes. We've got t-shirts for now. You can get yours only at Nice Guy's Pizza in Cape Coral. By the way, we're plotting our next live show there. And speaking of live shows, we just confirmed we're doing one across the street at the Palace Pub and Wine Bar with local pub trivia Quizmaster and co-host of the super awesome No Nonsense Trivia Podcast, Lee Brett Schneider. That's Monday, November 25th at 7 p.m. Be there or be square. For this week's parting tune, we're going back one year to episode 35 with New York-based artist Jen Ray and her just plain excellent song story, about her second grade teacher channeling the one and only Dolly Parton and listening to the song Dolly herself described as her most pitiful song ever.
2: She had like the polyester pantsuit and the blousy white blouse underneath it. And so, and she was wonderful. Like as a second grader, you're like, oh my God, my teacher is so pretty with this big hair. And anyway, and she was very sweet. So one day we had a little downtime in class. She brought in a little record player. And she brought out this 45, and we all gathered around. It's like, like it happened yesterday. We all gathered around, and she put on this record, and the record was Me and Little Andy. And I'd never experienced anything like this. Um, and all the kids were just completely um, enraptured by this song. And then my teacher became so overcome with emotion during the song, she started crying. <laughs> <laughs> and then somewhere... S- from some distant area, somebody came and basically had to take her away because she was just couldn't continue in the class, and so she went to like the teacher's lounge to recover, and so then she eventually had like, came back. She was like,
0: like she had like a mini breakdown,
2: <laughs> mini Dolly Parton related breakdown. While is Dolly graders. Parton
0: <laughs> in front of second graders.
2: <laughs> well, when you hear the song, you'll <laughs> hopefully will understand why, because all of us were really highly affected as well by this song, and it's a story song, so that gives you a little bit of a clue but um i feel like when that happened it was so powerful like the way that you could affect an audience by playing or performing music i think that really triggered something in me that i saved for later and Hmm. it has to do with my practice and what i do
0: keep listening
2: Next time on Three Song Stories.
0: Definitely Milli Vanilli. I did a lot of dancing in my room by myself. I definitely had parachute pants and swatches and Z Cavaricis. All that.